0: This episode of Local Knowledge is presented by the 2023 Grand Wagoneer.
1: We have the drive of a lifetime approaching the green, looking solid, smooth, stylish even. It's the 2023 Grand Wagoneer. Inside and out, its stunning design is impossible to miss. Classic lines, spacious seating and cargo, premium accents. It's simply a master of its game. And along with that beauty comes stunning intelligence too. With up to 75 inches of total available screen area, The world is at your fingertips. There you have it, folks. The 2023 Grand Wagoneer takes the match. I think that deserves a round of applause. Wagoneer is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC.
0: The thought that I brought into this podcast and that I felt pretty certain about was that Okay, cheating in a competition is always a fascinating thing to consider, to talk about. But the least interesting form of that is when you cheat for money or some kind of worldly success that leads to status, that leads to money. Because that, for me, was understandable. Doesn't mean it's good, but the motive on the surface is pretty clear. You know, you don't really need to delve too deeply into the subconscious to understand it. But then something tripped me up, this thought that, okay, this does seem pretty black and white, but then you have to ask the question of why some people cheat and others don't under the exact same set of circumstances. I don't think the people that play fair necessarily want fame or money or legacy any less than the person who cheats, but there is something in the mind of the person who won't cheat that blocks it out as a possibility. And the opposite is clearly true in the mind of a cheater. That barrier is broken down. And again, you have to ask why. To answer that question, we might have to look outside the world of professional or high level amateur sports, and we might have to look at low stakes competition. Here's a real world example. I run a sports trivia league. It's called Apocalypse Sports Trivia. There are no prizes, it's purely for entertainment. It's competitive, but you don't win anything except the tiniest bit of prestige among a very limited community. We have about a thousand players from across the country, a few from Canada. Most of them don't interact or interconnect in any way outside of this league. There is so little incentive to cheat, and yet it has happened. Not often, which, you know, maybe that's a credit to humanity, but it does exist. It has happened. And I think the why in that case is very difficult to understand, especially for those of us who don't like to cheat. Me personally, I am very scrupulous in any kind of competition, big or small. And when I try to ask myself, you know, honestly, why are you like this? I think it's true that, okay, there's some, you know, morality there. I know it devalues the competition if I cheat. But probably the bigger thing for me is that I know I wouldn't be able to enjoy any success I got from it. For instance, I would love to shoot 79 on a golf course. I've come close before. But let's put out a hypothetical. Let's say I was really close one day. I'm on the 18th hole and my drive rolled, you know, Hillendale golf course on the left side. It rolls out of bounds by a foot. And maybe the rationalization start up in my head at that point. Okay, I don't think this should be OB over here. It's not even a real road anymore. I don't think it's fair. Isn't it easy if I just go play the ball? Come on, I can just punch out to the fairway, go make my 79. How rigorous can we be? I'm not a professional. Now imagine I did all that, got my 79, and came in and told everyone, I finally broke 80. Not only would I immediately feel guilty, but the triumphant feeling that I expect and hope to feel when I do break 80, should that day ever come, that wouldn't be there. It would be very hollow and I would feel awful about myself. I'd feel guilty. And if anyone complimented me or bought me a drink or whatever, it would feel even worse. I'd feel like a complete phony. We have seen this in golf before. I don't know if you remember Blaine Barber. He was in the web.com Q school in 2012. He thought his club moved a leaf in a bunker at one point. His caddy didn't even think it did, but Barber did. So he assessed himself a one stroke penalty he went on and he made the cut in Q school. This was the first stage by five shots. Advanced to the second stage. Well, he found out later that the correct penalty there was two strokes. Now think about what you might do in that situation or what you might want to do. If he had correctly taken the two strokes, he still would have made the cut by a lot. Four shots instead of five. But the problem now is that if he reported it, the penalty for the incorrect penalty is disqualification. And needless to say, you know, again, this is Q School. This is a massive moment in his career. Nobody's really going to know if he said nothing except him, his caddy, maybe his wife. But he couldn't live with it. Six days later, he called up, disqualified himself. And this was a massive sacrifice for Blaine Barber, a huge career hit. Now, why can Blaine Barber not live with himself, but somebody else can? Makes you think that maybe the reason people cheat for big money and the reason they cheat for nothing could be fundamentally the same, a kind of drive internally that outweighs the guilt the rest of us might feel. All you can say for sure about the motivation behind cheating is that everybody has their own line somewhere. Most of us like the feeling and the rewards that come from winning, whether that's a material award or purely just, you know, the satisfaction of it, the acknowledgement of your peers. What we'll do to achieve that is different for everyone and it all comes back to your values, whether those are Family or societal values, religious values, Blaine Barber cited Christianity as a big reason for his confession, or just your own personal morals. That's different for everybody. Golf is a great place to talk about this because it's not like basketball where, you know, everyone can see you at all times and there's a referee. Golf, largely, you're out on your own. Even if you have a gallery, they can't see you all the time. It is a self-policing sport, which means it's a sport where it's very easy to cheat. And therefore, because it is so easy to cheat, cheating itself is despised and frowned upon more than probably any other game. You may see this differently from me, but in my mind, the honor of golf, you know, the romance associated with the integrity of the game, calling your own penalties, is almost functional. It's even a practical result, I think, of how easy it is to cheat. You better dole out some shame or all hell breaks loose because you can't count on everyone to be an upright citizen. That's not human nature. Some people will be. Others are going to bend those rules or break them every chance they get if there's any benefit to them at all. So the honor, the integrity, the PR of this, right, the propaganda of it is an additional stick in some way. We have to cultivate this group value because beyond everything, we need the threat that if you cheat, your reputation is going to be ruined. Today, we're going to talk about a particular form of cheating in golf called sandbagging. I was curious when I started to research this podcast where that term comes from. You know, I've known it forever, of course, but I never really stopped to think what it meant, what its origins might be. And before I looked it up, I tried to imagine how it might relate to the sandbags that you use in a hurricane or a flood or just on a construction site, I guess. That was a waste of time. There's nothing to do with any of that. The origin actually is in gang warfare as it existed in the 1800s. Think like Gangs of New York, hand-to-hand combat. And a sandbagger was somebody who literally put sand in a small bag or a sock and used it to, you know, swing and hit the enemy. Apparently this was pretty effective, I can imagine. Can't be fun to get hit by a clump of sand. The word went from there to poker, where a sandbagger was somebody who would have a great hand, but not raise too much, not give away how good the hand was, until the last round of betting, then they'd make you pay for it. They'd swing the sandbag at you. And the term there was used, obviously, for the clobbering they'd give you on the river. But because it included an early element of deception, it took on a secondary meaning of before you beat people, you're tricking them, which it didn't really have in the gangland sense of the word. And it became a perfect term in golf for somebody who pretends his handicap is higher than it actually is. That's the deception part. And then wins a tournament and maybe some money or other prize because his net score is better than everybody else's because of that inflated handicap. And probably the most famous example of sandbagging ever came in the U.S. in 1955 on Long Island at a place called Deepdale Golf Club in Great Neck. And it was there where a man named Bill Roberts managed to sandbag his way to a win and a big money prize, very big for the time. And his story is instructive because not only does it show us how someone can cheat at golf, but it shows the consequences of when you're caught. Bill Roberts is the very definition of a cautionary tale. And that's the other big part of the story here. He won his money. He bought a car. But when the hammer came down, it ruined his golf life. And it ruined it forever. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. Today we are telling the story of a man you have likely never heard of in the world of golf. And that is Bill Roberts. He's not a professional golfer. In fact, I don't even know if he's alive right now. As of May 2000, he was 71 years old. He'd be about 93 today. I thought I had found his obituary a couple times, but the details ended up being wrong. And it's not, you know, incredibly crucial to the story if he's alive or not, so I'm not going to pursue it further, but it just shows that this man is obscure. But he was not obscure in 1955. That year, he was 26 years old, and as a good local amateur, he became the center of a sandbagging scandal that truly and fundamentally changed the way golf was played in america especially at private clubs and the details of this thing the nitty-gritty of the story the fact that we know them at all is because golf digests dave anderson a legendary journalist who worked for years at the new york times won a pulitzer prize for his sports writing passed away in 2018 he tracked bill roberts down in 2000 to his condo in chicopee massachusetts about 45 years after the so-called deepdale scandal And he wrote this excellent piece about something that had been shrouded in mystery for a very long time. And at that point, when he found Bill Roberts, age 71, he was ready to talk. And he had quite a story to tell. A little bit of background here. Roberts was again 26. In 1955, he was described in the New York Times then as a part-time laundromat worker, a three-handicap, three-time club champion at a place called The Orchards, which was in South Hadley, Massachusetts, and one day in the mail, he got an invitation to play in a tournament at Deepdale Golf Club. Now, a little bit of context there. Deepdale was a club in Great Neck, New York. And I say was because it's still around today. But the year after all this happened, Robert Moses built the Long Island Expressway. They needed the land and the club moved from Great Neck to Manhasset, which is not too far away. And it's still there today. And by the way, there's a side story there. I can't resist telling when they moved the club to Manhasset. They bought the estate of the Grace family. And the Grace family were wealthy business people. The W.R. Grace Company dealt in petrochemicals. They were very wealthy. So this estate was sold. A beautiful golf course was built. You know, even today, it makes a lot of the top list of courses in the U.S. and New York, especially. But the idea at the time was that the Grace Mansion would be used as the clubhouse for all this. Problem was, you had to buy the mansion, too. And four of the grandchildren of W.R. Grace had to agree. Three of them did. No problem. No problem. But the fourth, Michael, decided he wasn't going to sell and he wasn't going to move out either. And this battle ensues where they're trying to use the place for a clubhouse. He's trying to live there. And a piece from Sports Illustrated uh, at the time, I have to read this excerpt. Here's what was going on for a period of years. Quote, In a lawsuit, Deepdale's owners accused the young scion of trying to distract duffers with noisy tractors, speeding cars, galloping horses, unleashed dogs, women in scanty swimsuits, and actors, quote, auditioning for a Broadway musical. The feud ended in 1958 when Michael was evicted, end quote. I would like to know more about that story. But let's focus up. That was all happening a year later, so let's go back to 1955, Deepdale. This was an elite club, and I mean, maybe the best signifier of that at the time was that the president, Dwight Eisenhower, was a member. If you look on Wikipedia now, they have their members listed, people like Michael Bloomberg, Tiki Barber, the NFL player, Sidney Poitier, the actor... You get the idea. And this tournament that Bill Roberts got the invite to included a Calcutta auction. Now, a Calcutta in this context, if you don't already know, means that the teams in this competition are auctioned off among the members in a kind of random order. So you can buy a team. And if your team wins, you get all the money or at least a portion of it. I think it was 25% of the pot in this case. And you split it between the people who own the team with the players on the team. It works this way in a lot of different sports. The name comes from the fact that the first time it was recorded was in association with horse racing at the Royal Calcutta Turf Club in India during the British Raj period. And in this case, at Deepdale, the team and their owners would win a quarter of the overall pot, 25%. Now, as you might imagine, at a place like Deepdale, the pot is huge. ended up being $45,000 that year in 1955. And as Dave Anderson writes... By 2000, that would have been the equivalent of $225,000. If you believe the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, they have an inflation calculator today, that number would be somewhere around $768,000. So this is huge money. And if you think it's a little crazy that a purse that large was at stake in this net handicap tournament where strangers are invited and could sandbag, well, join the club. It does seem ripe for exploitation, doesn't it? And they weren't alone. Deepdale wasn't the only one. These Calcuttas were very common practice. Anderson reports that at some point Seminole Golf Club, the famous club in Florida, had a pot of 193,000. Imagine how much that is today. So again, it's not new or it's not novel to Deepdale. It was happening all across the country. Let me ask you two questions. You're in the market for a vehicle. How important is comfort and how important is safety? If your answer to those is, well, obviously, both of those are very important, may I suggest you check out the Jeep Grand Wagoneer. Talk about safety, that's number one for a lot of us. I know it is for me. The Grand Wagoneer offers over 140 safety and security features, including driving assist, comfortable, absolutely, 24-way power adjustable seats, featuring memory and massage. Who doesn't like a good massage? Available seating for up to eight, best-in-class second-row legroom, and the sound system is state-of-the-art. The Jeep Grand Wagoneer has all of this stuff. So. If you're interested in the drive of a lifetime, check out the Jeep Grand Wagoneer. Forget the score and enjoy the drive. And one of the great mysteries of the story, and it's one that persists, is how Bill Roberts got an invitation. Again, he was a good amateur, but he wasn't famous or anything like that. His dad, Ray Roberts, was a good golfer, won a New England Pro-Am, made the USAM one year. But it's not like even he is someone that anybody at Deepdale would know or seek out. He's not that famous. And Dave Anderson, the Golf Digest writer, asked Bill Roberts years later, and he still had no idea. He didn't know any Deepdale members. His best guess was that his wife at the time, you know, maybe she had a few high society friends. Maybe they finagled the invite somehow. He didn't know. But he gets this invite three weeks before the tournament. and comes to his home in Amherst, Mass., And that's in late August. The tournament is slated for mid-September. And the invite says, you know, bring a partner. This is a tournament of two-person teams. And so he was going to do it. And part of the invitation was that he could go up for a practice round. The week before, he could go up for the dinner for the Calcutta auction, you know, in midtown Manhattan. So he drives up to Deepdale. He plays nine holes. And in the locker room afterward, he meets a man named Army Armstrong. Army Armstrong is a bank executive. He's a member at Deepdale. They strike up a conversation. Again, remember, Roberts doesn't know anybody here. So Armstrong invites him along. He says, you know, you can join us at dinner. You can sit at our table. And what comes next is Roberts' version of the story, as told Anderson. Armstrong has his own version. We'll get to that later. But according to Roberts, Armstrong tells him to follow him in his car. He puts on a yacht cap. He drives very fast, so Roberts can barely keep up. And they get to this big, beautiful ballroom at a hotel somewhere in midtown Manhattan. They start talking, and Armstrong sees on the sheet of the players that they hand out that Roberts is a 17 handicap, and his partner is an 18. Now, this was a mistake, according to Roberts. He had listed himself as a 7, and his partner as an 18, which, on his behalf, was still wrong. He was a 3. But along the way, somebody seemed to have put a 1 in front of that first number by mistake. So his handicap, at least, is incredibly inflated. And when he sees this, Roberts says to Armstrong, you know, I'm not a 17, come on. But instead of correcting the error, Armstrong smells opportunity. So he leaves the room. He calls a Connecticut amateur he knows, asks him about Roberts. The guy tells him, yeah, it's very good. Roberts is a very good golfer. He comes back and says, we're going to buy you. And Bill Roberts, and this is critical, I think, a critical juncture of the story, He's fine to go along with that. He doesn't say anything. And the auction happens, and Armstrong buys Bill Roberts and his team for $1,900, along with a couple other people. Now, you may have realized I haven't mentioned a partner yet. That's because there wasn't one at the time. Roberts had to put somebody down on paper when he accepted the invitation. He wrote down a man named Richard Vitali, and he put his handicap down as an 18, which was also bogus, apparently. The problem was... Vitaly had no intention of playing. He was just starting an insurance career. He had a young son. And here's what he told Anderson. He said, quote, I also knew Bill, and I knew that I would probably end up paying for the whole thing. He was capable of doing that. He would come up and say he didn't have it when you got there. End quote. And it's not even clear with Vitaly that he knew he was listed in the first place as a partner. It doesn't seem like Roberts ever actually invited him before this whole thing went down. So, Roberts goes home from that auction, and he's got a problem. The weekend is coming. He's just been purchased for a fairly big price, and he was kind of stunned to learn what kind of high rollers he was dealing with. Again, he didn't know anything about Deepdale. But he doesn't have an actual partner yet. He's got to play on the weekend. So, what do you do? Well, he starts calling people. A couple people say no, and apparently the third person he calls is Charles Helmar. He's a factory worker, and he's also a three handicap. Everyone calls him Bud. And they don't even know each other that well, these two guys. But Robert says, you know, all your expenses are going to be paid and I'll pay you $100 if you come play in this tournament. And he also mentions, by the way, Bud, you're going to have to play under the name Richard Vitale, the original guy, because that's the name I put down and it's too late to change anything. And of course, that also includes playing with Richard Vitale's 18 handicap. And Helmar agrees. And so these two guys, both of them, again, three handicaps, head out for Long Island that weekend, one of them playing under a fake name. They're going to be playing as a 17 handicap because of a typo that was never corrected and an 18 handicap because of outright fraud and impersonation. And on that car ride, Helmar keeps asking him, you know, how'd you get this invite? But Roberts has no idea still. And then something else happens that's pretty interesting, which is that one way or another, it worked out that Armstrong, the man who bought them, the bank executive, who was also playing in the event, Gets put in there for some. And the fourth guy, Armstrong's partner, is another co-owner of the team. He bought in on this Calcutta auction, which is awfully convenient, isn't it? Because these guys own the team, the Bill Roberts, Bud Helmar team. And as the very last line of defense for any of this is that maybe the playing partners are going to report that they're sandbagging. That problem is immediately taken care of. Armstrong's their partner. Not going to be any problem there. Roberts is caddy. Seen him golf in the practice round. He told him, you know, look, I saw your handicap. I just bet $100 on you. So, tournament starts. You can imagine how it goes. They are lighting it up, especially by net score, to the point that, you know, this is a two-day tournament. On the second day, they are intentionally trying to miss shots because it's becoming a little too egregious. Here's what Bill Roberts said to Dave Anderson years later. Quote, on one hole, I had a six or seven iron to the green, and I told my caddy, give me two. I wanted to hit into the trees behind the green. I did, but it bounced off the trees and back onto the green. It wouldn't have mattered what we shot. When we finished, the first thing Army did was look at the other scores before he turned our card in, end quote. So the implication there is, you know, if we didn't win, uh, Armstrong was going to make sure that we did. But they were winning easily. It didn't come to that. To the point that the pro at Deepdale made it a point to watch them tee off and finish because he was suspicious. And in later comments to a newspaper, here's how he described it. He said, quote, I said to myself, they play better golf than I do. I'm a short knocker, but that Roberts hit the ball a mile. They knew they had the tournament in the bag, so they played like a couple hackers on the 18th, end quote. Now, Armstrong, who again was a bank executive, his real name was Richard. He was dead by the time Anderson wrote his story. But he wasn't even a Deepdale member. He was a member at Sands Point, which was nearby. And a couple people who knew him there, you know, Dave Anderson for this Golf Digest story, contacted them, and they called him a schemer. And when this story broke, a couple weeks later, a couple weeks after the Deepdale, when the local newspapers caught wind of it in New York, in Springfield, Armstrong denied everything. He said, look, I bought other teams too. I bought half of my own team. If I knew these guys were sandbaggers, I never would have done it he did admit to sitting with Roberts at the Calcutta auction. And here's what he had to say about all the circumstantial evidence, you know, surrounding this whole debacle quote, the tournament just seemed to be loaded with coincidences for me. Roberts sat at our table, though I didn't talk to him. And then Sumner and I were paired with him and his partner. Later Roberts and Helmar told me about blowing a tire and being unable to have it fixed at busy Saturday night gas stations so I invited them to stay at my house, even loaned them my souped-up pet convertible. End quote. So his story is, you know, gee whiz, what a weird thing. Sat with them at the dinner, bought their team, stayed at my house, they used my car. But I knew nothing about any of the sandbagging. Roberts and Helmar won easily by five shots of the total purse $16,000 went to their investors. And Roberts and Helmar came away with about $4,000 each. Not bad for a weekend's work which is probably where the whole thing would have ended, except something kind of extraordinary happened, which is that Helmar, who was dragged into this thing at the last minute, knew what he was doing, but things were moving fast. Once it's over, he has what looks to be a legitimate and sincere crisis of conscience. Roberts does not. You know, he's enjoying the whole thing. He calls up Vitali, who, again, he listed as his original partner. He tells the story. He's laughing about it. He has no apparent concerns, but Helmar does. And it eats at him, and six days after it's over, he writes this letter to L. Dorland Doyle, the president at Deepdale, and he confesses everything. He writes to Doyle, you know, I haven't received any money. Anything you send me, I'll send it back to you right away. He said, quote, From the time I teed off, I realized I was doing something wrong, and much to my regret, I continued playing under false pretenses. Upon arriving home, being conscious stricken, I contacted Dick Vitale and learned all this was done without his knowledge or consent and that his handicap was only eight, end quote. Now, I think that's interesting to flag if it's true that Vitale's handicap was only eight. And Roberts had listed him as an 18. You know, remember, Roberts claimed that he only listed himself as a seven and that one got thrown in there, you know, became a 17. That wasn't his doing. That was a typo. That was somebody at Deep Tail screwing up, but if he was willing to make an eight and eighteen, would he really only put himself from a three to a seven? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe he thought eight and eighteen was realistic, and you know, three and seventeen wasn't. But it does make you wonder. In any case, Vitali, who didn't know any of this was going on, he got this call from Helmar, and he immediately also wrote to Doyle, saying, "Listen, I had no idea about any of this." Roberts, on the other hand, cashes his check for almost four grand. But then the story gets out in the newspapers in both New York and in Springfield, Massachusetts. Suddenly his name is out there. This is all because of the letter that Helmart wrote. This gets leaked. And so Roberts decides to disappear. One of the reporters from the papers trying to follow the story up found his mailman. The mailman said, You know, I have no idea where he is, I haven't seen his car in days. That car, by the way, was a green Volkswagen that Roberts had just purchased with all his winnings. So, the story hits the papers on November 1st in the World Telegram and Sun out of New York. Army Armstrong drove up to meet Roberts. Roberts said, you know, get out of here. I don't want to talk to you. Deepdale members started calling Roberts on the phone. One of them said, apparently, I'm going to destroy you. Got so bad for Roberts that, according to him, eventually the New York District Attorney called to apologize for the threats he had gotten because... You know, whatever else he had done, he hadn't broken an actual law. Helmar, when the story hit the papers, he apparently showed up with his wife at Vitali's house, hysterically crying, telling him how sorry he was. He took it so hard that when Anderson tried to talk to him about it, 45 years later, he was still alive. He was 80 years old then. He refused completely. This is what he said to Anderson. Quote, no way. I ended up in a hospital and everything. No way am I going to talk about that. End quote. And of course, Anderson follows up, you know, what do you mean you ended
1: up in the hospital? But Helmar wouldn't say another word. Olukai is a Hawaiian-inspired footwear brand that has made it their mission to make the most comfortable shoes for all life's adventures. For years, their fans had asked when they were going to make golf shoes so they could wear their favorite styles out on the course. So, last year they finally did, making some of the most comfortable golf shoes out there. They took the DNA that makes their shoes comfortable, including dual-density removable and washable footbeds, a foldable heel for transition from course to clubhouse, and reinforcement and soft spikes to enhance golf performance. They have three great styles in their men's line two sporty styles that are water repellent, and one classic style with waterproof leather, and two women's styles as well. The golf shoes have thousands of reviews with a 4.8 star rating. Try out a pair for yourself today at olukai.com. That is O L U K A I.com. Doyle, the club
0: president, he called Roberts and asked for the money back. According to him, Roberts denied at first that he had any money, then eventually said, okay, I have it, but I spent it already. Everyone else who made money off of them promised to donate it to charity, with one exception. The one exception was Army Armstrong, who said, according to the Times, hey, I won this thing on good faith, you know, and made the argument that if he gave the money back, he would have been out of pocket. Ray Roberts, Bill's father, remember he's a a big golfer as well. He claims that he sent a check to reimburse the club because apparently his son wasn't going to. And this becomes such a story in the golf world, becomes so widespread and, and kind of infamous, not just in the Northeast, but it gets around everywhere, that the USGA institutes this big crackdown. Joe Dye was the executive director at the time. You might remember he later became the first commissioner of the PGA Tour. And he institutes this growing movement to outlaw Calcutta's generally because of Deepdale. Dai had a quote where he said, Consciously or unconsciously, the men who support these pools are using golf as a medium to prostitute golf. End quote. This was big enough that it got into Sports Illustrated. In fact, they wrote about it a couple times. And a year later, they wrote about the after effects of all this. And they said, quote, Deepdale has become a dirty word in golf these days, and it would seem almost axiomatic that a Calcutta pool would be about as welcome at a golf tournament as a snake at a picnic. The U.S. Golf Association added a new section to its rules, defining conduct which can cause forfeiture of amateur status. The new rule bans any conduct, including activities in connection with golf gambling, which is considered detrimental to the best interests of the game, end quote. So they didn't ban Calcutta's, but they came pretty close. And in general, Calcutta's started to go away pretty quickly after Deepdale. A lot of clubs banned them. The Bing Cosby Pro-Am at Pebble Beach ended theirs. That was probably the most famous in the world. And today you don't hear about them much anymore at all. And Deepdale was the start of that. That was the impetus. Bill Roberts got banned by his home club, the Orchards. And when Anderson found him all those years later, they spoke in the kitchen of his condo. And some of the quotes from Roberts, I think no matter what you think about the Deepdale scandal, they're pretty sad. He talked about his life since he had done a variety of jobs, been a teacher, a construction clerk, He worked in real estate, the stock market. He told Roberts that all this was evidently not too successful. He estimated that he had only played about 90 rounds of golf in his entire life after the scandal. It's an average of about twice per year. And he told Anderson the story of how he was invited to play Springfield Country Club by a friend not too long after the scandal. And almost immediately after he put his tee in the ground, the pro came running out and said, no, 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 you can't do this. He's barred. He's not supposed to play here. The friend that invited him defended him and he did get to play, but he never went back. And you can imagine how something like that would sour him on the whole thing. You know, he had tears in his eyes when he was talking to Anderson, telling him that story. He went back to the Orchards, his home club, one time in 1972. This is many years later. His father wanted him to go. They played in the club tournament together, and they finished third, but somebody protested. As Roberts put it, there's always some SOB who protests. He wanted to become a PGA pro at one point, but he couldn't get enough other pros to sign his application. He only needed three, and he'd known these guys his whole life, but they wouldn't do it. Once he went to Toronto for the Canadian Amateur, this was outside the USGA's jurisdiction, and there he met a famous gambler named Martin Stanovich. And Stanovich objected to Roberts on the grounds that he had been so blatant about cheating that he'd ruined it for everyone, ruined the hustle. And he told him, get away from me. Go putt on the other side of the green. So everywhere this guy went, he was loathed. And at the end of Anderson's story, Roberts says this. He says, quote, I'll take 50% of the blame for what happened at Deepdale, but there's 50% I can't account for. I feel badly because I never gave myself a chance to be a top player. I'd have liked to have had a couple mulligans for myself. To have the opportunities I had and not do more in life, there must have been something wrong with me. End quote. And that, to me, is a little heartbreaking, maybe a lot heartbreaking. And I think it's as good an illustration as you'll find of the consequences of cheating in this sport, the consequences of sandbagging. It's hard to know how to feel about all that. On one hand, the guy was 26, doesn't seem like he set out to cheat egregiously. He inflated his handicap a little, which is not unusual. But he got caught up in this whirlwind of events. He got caught up in the the orbit of Army Armstrong. And granted, he did nothing to stop it. He didn't even refuse the money. He got his new car. He didn't return it. There weren't many moral guideposts there, but at the same time, the shame of it all, lasting years that obviously stayed with him until he was a very old man, that seems like a heavy punishment in a lot of ways. You have to think of him as unlucky. Just a little bit. There's a great story you can look up and digest called The Dirty Little Secrets of a Sandbagger. Guy Yokum put this together, and the origin is neat. He played with these two guys in a tournament who were sandbagging. In Texas, he had drinks with them afterward, and one of them agreed to talk to him anonymously. And his point was, look, everybody is doing this. If you don't sandbag, you're just giving money away by joining these tournaments. You're a flight filler. And they had a lot of little tricks they told him about, but it was all very subtle. But in terms of the morality, he makes at least an interesting point. Here's one of his quotes. My conscience was not a problem. You have to know the Texas golf environment to understand that. It's a big state, and the handicapped police were totally outgunned. By fudging on my handicap by three or four shots, I did not win everything I played in. There were plenty of tan handicappers masquerading as 18s. What Bill Roberts did wasn't subtle in that same way. It wasn't smart like that. It was actually pretty stupid. And he also did it for a lot of money in a way that was never going to fly under the radar. But in some ways, that almost makes him more sympathetic. He wasn't savvy. He was a young kid pretty much a rube. He got some dollar signs in his eyes and suddenly he's involved with something way out of his depth and it costs him his golfing life, essentially. As Anderson wrote in the last line of his story, he became the man without golf. And what can you say about that? Except it all traces back to that concept of honor in this sport. And I would maintain again that the basis of the honor of the code is the ease with which anyone can cheat. In this game where you are so often on your own, if we have to police ourselves, there better be a value system in place so that it's not a complete joke, that we actually care that you have an incentive beyond your own morality to play fair. As we've seen, the emphasis on honor doesn't keep people from cheating. still happens. But the lesson of Bill Roberts ultimately is that he was a kind of sacrifice. He was somebody who got caught. And in some unconscious way across the golf world, he became an example. He became the cautionary tale. He became the whipping boy, a way to say to everybody else, yes, you can cheat. You might even get away with it. And if you don't get away with it, you're not even going to be punished by the law. But you will be punished. And it's going to be harsh in its own way. Your reputation is going to be demolished. And not only are you not going to forget it, but we're not going to forget it either. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried, with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. We use two songs for today's music, Piz Twang and That's Snow Business, both of those by Discovery Clear. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And we've got two others for you to check out, too. First one is Golf Digest weekly podcast, that's called The Loop. We also have a brand new podcast on golf instruction with Luke Kerdineen, and that is called Golf IQ. Both of them are out now, and you can subscribe to both. Thank you so much for listening. Have
1: a wonderful day.